And as we settle in, first, first things, you saw a lot of you have the name tags, thank you. Those are helpful so that as you're gathering around, you can get to know people. That's great. Um, on the, um, the website, how many of you got the email that gave you the link to the website? Probably the other way around. How many did not get the email that said there was a website? There's a handful. Please email me at steve at countryside. I know I sent an email out from home trying to be efficient and working from home, and I, my default email was my steve at sirarmstrong.com, and it's like, whoops, I don't want emails to go to both. So please use my church address. That would be helpful. But email me, and I'll bounce you back, and I'll be sending out another reminder to everyone in the class of what that website looks like and um, where it's located. So I'll send that out again so we have that. Um, on the reading, um, there is a question. Um, Bill, can you hit the uh, space bar on my computer there? <laughs> Thank you. There we go. So this is what's on the front of your notebook. You should have a, the, the schedule that's on there. And there's some questions about the red, um, red letters on the, um, on the book reading. Those are the inspired ones? No, just kidding. Those are the ones that um, are actually ACBC requires, um, not requires, it's on their reading list. If you're going through the ACBC program, you have to read 1,000 pages, of which 300 have to be theology, and then the rest have to be in the counseling, in their book list. These are the ones in the red that actually qualify for that reading list. So that's why those are marked in red. So those that are not in the official cohort won't make any difference to you necessarily. So um, that's, what the, that's what they mean. So there's nothing special. There's some that say partial reading. There is, in scattered in the notes somewhere, there is some specific pages. So we had to extract those out, and I'll give you the exact pages, and I'll email that out as well about what those pages are. I'll insert them into this um, file, and we can download that again. But I also wanted to discuss really briefly, I don't want to get too far because there's so much to discuss on this, on the certification process, but it's more just to let you know that there is, there's no door closed here. There was a limited amount of people that we can bring through just because of the resources. We don't have enough... Um, space and time for that to occur for everyone to go through the official. I think there was over 60 people that said, I'm interested. Then I sent out the qualification email that says, this is what, what you have to do to qualify in order to apply. And some said, well, I need to do more work on that. That's great. But the door is not closed on that. So as we're going through this and saying, this is fascinating, I, I, I believe I'd want to do this more, you just let me know. And then I'll, I'm going to post the qualifications on that website. I'm going to make a special sheet just for that so you can pick on it and download and see what the qualifications are. If you have any questions, you can um, email me on that. But the door is not closed. So you can say, yes, I'm interested in, in this. I believe I'm qualified. And then we'll put you on a wait list. And then when it comes about, you can do the application, and you're ready to roll. People will do drop out. People will be completing the program. So there'll be time and opportunity for that to occur. Um, just so you know that that door is not necessarily closed. And I'm sure there's going to be more questions on that, but I'll be in the back afterwards, and I'm happy to answer some of those in more detail. But I'll try to put a lot of stuff online. So with that, let me um, go ahead and pray, and then we'll get Daniel up and get started. Lord, I ask that you prepare our minds to hear your word, to comprehend your special revelation to us. I pray our hearts have the singular ambition to glorify you. Lord, I pray our hearts to be ready to be taught, to be reproved, um, to be corrected and trained in righteousness in order to be more Christ-like. Lord, I pray for Daniel as he unfolds this truth to us today. In Jesus' name, amen.
Well, good morning, everyone. Hope you're having a good Lord's Day thus far. I have a new setup here with my sweater, so it's not cooperating fully. There we go. All right. Well, if you guys have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to 2 Peter uh, chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. Normally, every time we get together, we'll open up the scriptures, we'll look at a key verse. Uh, that relates to biblical counseling. Today we're going to look at one that's kind of more overarching, that impacts all of what we do, to kind of dive back into the topic that we were in a little bit yesterday and we'll carry on today, that is the sufficiency of Scripture. So let me read our text. It's 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. The word in this verse that speaks to sufficiency is the word everything. He's granted to us everything okay, for life and for godliness. Uh, specifically how? We can see that it's through His power, okay, the power that He gave us right, at salvation, right, that God empowers and strengthens us. Paul mentions this, this power in Ephesians 3.20. He says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us. That may be a familiar verse for some of you guys. We see here that divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life, right, through that power. This word life could be understood by some to mean eternal life. Okay, so you have eternal life and then godliness or justification and sanctification, in other words. Um, and, and thus life and godliness are speaking of when a person was first saved and then sanctification that comes afterward. This word though could also be understood as life in the sense of all that our lives comprise. Okay, everything that goes on today in our lives in particular. This is in contrast to the other Greek word for life that means bios or biological life specifically. And we can see this use of this Greek word, just our lives in general, in Luke 12, 15. It says, Then he said to them, Beware and be on guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Right? Possessions, in other words, are not going to ultimately be what's fulfilling in our lives. Okay? What we need holistically, completely. But either way you interpret this passage, it clearly speaks to God's divine power granting to us everything ultimately that we need through the true knowledge of Him. Okay? All the way from eternal life, everything for sanctification here and today, okay, for our lives. And so MacArthur uh, explains kind of his position on this and thinking of this. He says, because of their constant sins and failures, speaking of Christians, we as Christians, many, uh, uh, excuse, let me start over. Because of their constant sins and failures as Christians, many find it hard not to think that even after salvation, something is missing in their sanctification. Okay? That will fix the problem that they have. This faulty idea causes believers to seek second blessings, second or spirit baptisms, tongues, mystical experiences, special psychological insights private revelation, self-crucifixion, the deeper life, heightened emotional experiences, demon bindings, and a combination or a combination of various ones of all these things in an attempt to obtain what is supposedly missing from their spiritual resources. Uh, 
All manner of ignorance and spiritual twisting accompanies these foolish pursuits, which at their corrupt roots are failures to understand exactly what Peter says here. Christians have received everything in the form of divine power necessary to equip them for sanctification. They have no lack at all. And so God's power, right, that He's given to us at salvation, right, through the true knowledge of Him as we get to understand Jesus Christ, okay, our model, right, who is the, the perfect okay, image of God and perfect example for us too, we have everything that we need in particular for life and godliness. And so as we think about that, I hope that's an incredible encouragement. And today we're going to look more and more to understand more and more uh, just how sufficient and comprehensive God's Word speaks to all the different parts of our counseling system. All right, let me go ahead and open up with prayer as well too before we get started on our notes. Father, again, we just pray and just lift up our time. We pray, Lord, your great help as, as I teach. Lord, it would be clear, would accurately reflect your truth. Lord, that those here would have hearts prepared. Lord, that uh, your word have an impact. That is, your counsel would have an impact. That we would be good counselees to be encouraged, to be helped, Lord, to understand the world, our lives, the lives of those around us, God, through the lens of Scripture. We pray this, that you would be exalted and honored in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, let's just kind of open up with a quick review of what we covered last time. I think most all of you were here, but maybe some were, were absent. We looked last time at the need and definition of biblical counseling, if you guys remember. And the need was that we have a counselor, okay, ultimately. We looked at Genesis chapter 1. God, okay, made all the different parts of creation. And when He got to us, okay, that is mankind, He spoke, okay, truth into His creation to give us direction, all parts of the creation, including us, glorify God just by being what they are. But we uniquely, as human beings, need the Word of God to direct our paths so that we can fully glorify God. And so, therefore, we need to be good counselees, okay? good counselees to have our hearts shaped by the Word of God so that ultimately we can accomplish okay, His glory. God's Word also, too, we looked at its sufficiency in particular. That is how His Word speaks to all the different troubles and trials. We talked about walking in the Spirit and how the fruit of the Spirit in particular produces things like love, joy, peace, patience, the very opposite of the reasons why people oftentimes come to get counseling. All right? And so God's Word produces the very opposite. It demonstrates its sufficiency. And so that was the need. We also looked at the definition, that is what biblical counseling is and what it is not. We started with what's not. It's not an autonomous ministry. It's integrated okay, with the life of the local church. It's not an activity actively reserved for experts. So in other words, those of us who know the Word of God, they're filled with all knowledge, like Romans 15, 14, are filled with all goodness. That means that we love other people, are able then to admonish, okay, to counsel to come alongside others. And so this is not a ministry that's actively reserved for, for experts. It's also not optional. Okay, as we look at Ephesians 4 and other texts, as we talk about the one another's, encourage, admonish, uh, confront, etc., this is not an optional ministry. It's one that's outlined that each one of us participate in in the life of the local church. It's also not separate from discipleship. Counseling is a subset of discipleship. As we speak truth in the people's lives, we are making disciples okay, of the ultimate counselor. We want them to respond in a Christ-like way okay, to the life circumstances that they face. It's also not 
insensitive or uncaring. Okay, as we look at the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, we saw his compassion, even in an incredibly difficult circumstance in Matthew 14, I believe it's verse 14, that he was tired, exhausted. His friend, John the Baptist, had just been murdered. And he comes up and he's wanting to get away and all of a sudden all these people, okay, you can imagine how your own heart okay, may have felt in that moment. I can imagine how mine might have felt. And Jesus, it says, describes the way he felt. He felt compassion. He loved and was moved with compassion. God cares about us, about people, and he ministers to their needs. And so again, biblical counseling is not insensitive or uncaring. Biblical counseling is also God-centered. We talked about how God defines, his word defines all that happens in the counseling system. We'll talk about that more today. It's also neuthetic. Okay, it takes the sense okay, of God's word and instructs our minds. Okay, and so it's, it's a teaching ministry. It's, it's us communicating God's truth so that others understand. It also discerns thoughts and desires and behavior that God wants to change. And uses God's word by the power of the Holy Spirit to change people. It also calls Christians to be God's kind of man or woman in the midst of their circumstances, right? They want to act like Jesus. They want to please the Lord as we respond to different circumstances in life. Our goal, therefore, is not happiness, success, contentment, all of those things first and foremost. It needs to be to please God by being His kind of man or woman. Lastly, it seeks the sanctification of the Christian for the glory of God, which those two are one and the same in many ways, just said in a different way. As we see the glory of Jesus, right, we, we see that there's nothing better, nothing uh, uh, more for us to grab onto or desire to be like or to achieve or accomplish in our lives. And so we seek to grow and change and to deal with the things in our lives we need to, to be like Him and to glorify God. And the main application to all this is that as we consider being counselors, as, as we want to speak truth into other people's lives, that we first are good counselees, right, that we are students of God's Word, that we regularly uh, invest time, okay? We, we take the time to just sit in the seat, as some theologians have said, to make sure that we comprehend and understand God's revelation to us, His Word, His counsel to us, and that it shapes our hearts, our minds, as we think about our world, our lives, okay, and the responsibilities that we have as we go out, okay? That's where it starts, okay? If we want to be good counselors, that has to be where it starts in our hearts and lives as well, too, as we are a student of God's Word. All right, before we get into our notes for today, anybody have any questions? Clarification? As I say, sometimes crowds of outrage protest, anything like that. Before we get into our, uh, our notes for today, I know this is a big class, so maybe that's kind of challenging. In, any points of clarification? I wanted to allow that in the morning before we get started. And maybe as we all get more familiar with one another, we'll ask more questions. Or maybe I'll ask you questions and then, you know, we'll just, we'll just do it that way. We'll, we'll figure it out. All right. Well, if you guys have your notes, let's start with theological foundations of biblical counseling. Theological foundations of biblical counseling. Today we'll consider the theological foundations of biblical or discipleship counseling. In other words, how the Bible acts as the sole authority for our counseling system. It is the foundation, in other words. This topic is vitally important because all counseling systems have a source of authority upon which they're built. 
For example, the collective psychologists of day today tend to point to science as their authority. And yet true science, that is one that has a good relationship to the truth or reality, will not contradict the truth that is God's word in the Bible. Today we'll look at how our counseling system is derived from the Bible and then how core teachings in the Bible relate to and therefore help form our counseling system. Topics like theology, anthropology, soteriology, ecclesiology, and many more. Again, it's vital to understand how the truth of the Bible shapes our practice of counseling since every counseling model comes out of a system and ultimate source of authority. And there's really only two. There's either God or it's man. We should not view the practice of counseling, therefore, as a tool belt where we can pick and choose what we think is the best tool in hopes to find what's best, okay, what people might say works, quote-unquote. Why? Because God has already made it clear how we are to counsel, okay, what the problems are, what the solutions are in his word. He wants us to speak the truth that is his truth in love. Our, our first point, A, we'll look at the theological uh, the, excuse me, the foundational presupposition, the foundational presupposition. Number one, this presupposition stated is the inspired and inerrant word of God is the only authoritative source by which we can know absolute truth. It is also totally sufficient to address any issue to which it speaks and for which it claims to be suspi- su- uh, sufficient. We looked at Second Peter just a moment ago. Let's look at this uh, in another text, Second Timothy 3, 16 and 17. I think a lot of us know this scripture. You can turn there if you like. Let me read it for us. It says, All scripture is inspired, or we could say breathed out. Okay? It's the product of the breath of God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. That word adequate can mean proficient or capable in particular. And this is the way that God's word speaks into our lives, it can make us able to do every good thing. I think that's a very clear statement of sufficiency. And so we looked at the foundational presupposition. Let's look at B, the process of developing our theology and ultimately our counseling system. How do we develop a counseling system biblically? Well, let's look at these different levels. Each level builds upon itself in uh, different ways. Okay, we have to have one before we can have two, and have two before we can have three, and so on. Level one, we must be, begin by identifying the canonical scriptures through the fields of higher criticism and textual criticism. Okay, these were some of my least favorite classes in seminary, just to be completely honest, if you guys have ever had, uh, you know, uh, looking back at the text and all, all the grammar and all those kind of things, it's very difficult. But here's the encouraging truth. Many men have gone before us, okay, and what we have in the Bibles that we hold are an extraordinary accurate, okay, representation of the original, okay, very, very high. And so many men have gone before us and have done that work, cross-referenced it, checked it, and so we have in our hands this work done, which is wonderful. Level two, we then seek to understand the scripture through the grammatical historical method of exegesis. And you know, what this is, many of you are probably familiar with it, but what we want to do is, is we want to understand the author's intent. So we, we want to understand the grammar, what words were used, how they're used, what the structure is, so we can tell what the emphasis of a passage is, okay, according to the author's mind, not just Peter or Paul or Moses, but God, ultimately, that's why it's critical, 
And we know that these texts, okay, weren't just authored, okay, without a context. They were authored with a historical context in mind in particular. And so we want to understand the Bible in those ways, okay, using the grammar and understanding of the historical context so that we can understand the principles and exactly what God intended for us to understand. From there, we go to level three. From the exegesis of a canonical text, we engage in the discipline of biblical theology by formulating propositional doctrinal statements. And so what uh, biblical theology is ultimately is the developing of theology over time. Okay, what Moses knew, okay, about God, okay, and what now we know that we have Genesis to Revelation, okay, this developed over time. Okay, last night my family and I read Isaiah 53, and we talked to our kids about how this was something that was going to happen hundreds of years later. I mean, pretty amazing. Right? It was only something that they knew, okay, in the distant future, but we now know and look back to ourselves. This is the developing of a biblical theology. Level four is the propositions of biblical theology are now correlated topically to produce a systematic theology. Now, because we have the whole Bible, we can look and say, what does the Bible holistically teach about one topic? And that's where we get systematic theological topics. What does the Bible say about who we are, or about who God is specifically? Because now we have the full revelation. Level five, building upon a thorough systematic theology, we arrive at a practical, arrive at practical theological conclusions about life. And biblical counseling falls within the discipline of practical theology, all right? It's the practice. Right? People are seeking practical answers. We want practical answers for what we are to do, how we're to live, how we're to respond, how we're to think about life and all that goes on inside of it. Let's look at, look at some implications from the theological pyramid. I think you guys can see uh, figure one there, the illustration. A of the implications, level five without one to four is not biblical counseling. Okay, Does that make sense? We don't skip the scriptures, an understanding of what God says about who we are, about who he is, about reality, and think that what we're doing is biblical counseling. So in other words, number one, biblical counseling is not just a generic system with scripture sprinkled over it. Okay? We don't use psychology and then throw some Bible verses in here or there and hope that our system now is biblical. It certainly isn't. Number two, too many people without theological training are telling the church, hey, this is a big concern, how to change and grow. Okay, and the problem is in the formation of their models. Right? If, I've heard people speak against biblical counseling, and you look at their books, and you turn it over to the back, okay, and you see usually their training is all listed there. And from their undergraduate, their master's, and their PhD were all done at secular universities learning psychology. But they're saying the Bible isn't sufficient. They, they don't have training practically in those things. All right, but this is also believers, okay, as well too. Believers and unbelievers alike do this very same thing. But as, as we think about the secular models, okay, that have been developed, there's a significant challenge, okay, to embrace them. All right, you can't even be completely confident of the results of the natural man stuttering, studying the natural man. That is, their reason, a fallen person's reason, right, based upon their observation. Jeremiah 17.9 helps us understand this. If you guys remember this text, I believe it says that um, the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately sick. All right, who could understand it? This speaks about our disposition. 
Okay, or you look at Romans, and it says that we're enemies of God. This is the disposition that sin has created in the hearts of unbelievers. And so as these men come before the observations that they make, okay, through the, their studies in psychology, and they draw conclusions, they interpret it, they're doing so through that lens as an enemy of God. This is why you guys have heard probably this illustration where two scientists, one Christian and one uh, you know, atheistic scientist looks at the Grand Canyon, okay, and one says, wow, look what took millions of years to take place. And the Christian says, look what took place over a small amount of time, okay, because of what happened at the beginning of Genesis. And so depending on our perspectives, okay, we interpret things very differently. The noetic effects, that is the effect of our minds, okay, the impact of sin that it had on our minds distorts our interpretations so that as fallen people interpret our world, they tend, okay, to oppose God, okay, and act as enemies of God in their interpretations. We'll talk more about that in the days ahead. Number three of implications, for counseling to be considered biblical, Scripture must have an active and functional control on any methods of change and growth that we use. And I'd say it's beyond that. It should have functional control of everything that we do ultimately in our counseling right, system and our counseling practice. Okay, it should be, that's the foundation, level one to four, before we get to level five. Be level, uh, level one to four without five is incomplete and ineffective. Okay, that is to say that we, we just study theology, but we don't allow it to practically impact our lives. Okay, this is true because theology was never given in a vacuum. Okay, it was meant to be applied. It was meant to impact our lives. If you think about James chapter 1, okay, that illustration of a man looking in a mirror, okay, seeing what God's Word says, but then walking away and completely forgetting what kind of person he was. And really, in reference to the Bible, the kind of person God wants them to be. And so theology was always meant to have a practical impact on our lives. And so we need to have level 1 all the way to level 5. That's a complete system. And so our job is not simply to dispense the word, but to minister the word, to really help it impact people's lives, to encourage, to help them have answers to the practical situations okay, that develop and happen in their individual lives. Uh, lastly, kind of a big picture point here. Uh, we have been in a battle for the Bible for many, many years. Over the last hundred years, many battles have been fought. First, it was the battle with the liberals over inspiration. Then it was the battle over the issue of inerrancy. Then today, the battle is with those who say the Bible is not sufficient. Okay, I hope today we'll, get, we'll encourage you guys, and in the weeks ahead as well too, how the Bible comprehensively speaks to the practice of counseling and to all the issues of our lives. See, ex examples of the uh, significance of systematic theology as a foundation for biblical counseling. So we want to look at level four, in other words, and look at how the kind of big picture, we're not going not to be comprehensive or exhaustive here, okay, necessarily, but look at the big picture of many different systematical, systematic theological topics like theology, okay? What does God have to do, in other words, with how we counsel people? Or what about epistemology or bibliology, okay? How we know what we know, how does that influence our counseling model? Or anthropology, specifically, who we are, how does that influence uh, what, what our counseling system is? So, Let's start with theology, number one. That is the doctrine of God. As we consider theology, 
we consider who God is and how he relates to counseling. So the, the truth is we need to know him, right? We know basically he's triune, that he's the creator. But let's look as well, too, at the big picture. Now, I, I think this section will be a whole lot easier just to kind of say, too, that uh, to explain, it would be easier to explain if we were asking how God does not impact our counseling system because the ultimate answer to that would be nothing because it all relates to God. This is true because the counselees' lives, all of our lives, are lived out in God's world. You guys may be familiar with Psalm 24, verse 1. It says, The earth is the Lord's, and all it contains, the world, and those who dwell in it. It's true that God created it. He created us and everything else that exists. This implies things like our responsibility to him as our creator and maker, but also the more profound, such as our complete and utter dependence on him for everything, both physically and spiritually. One of my favorite psalms is that God opens up his hand and satisfies the desires of every living thing. And so we are dependent upon him. That's physically, also spiritually. John 15, 5 says, apart from me, you can do nothing, speaking of bearing fruit. And so as a creation of God, we are dependent on God for everything. And since this is his world, he sets the agenda, he empowers it, and he oversees it. For any counselee who wants to escape God, that is their circumstances, you know, we think our minds are drawn back to Psalm 139, okay, that God is everywhere, okay, there's no escape ultimately. <clears throat> God does whatever he pleases, and he rules over all, okay, there's no escape, but the wonderful thing is that he does not rule as men do. He's a loving God, a relational God, and interestingly, he has a relationship with each one of the men and women that he's created. This does not mean it's a good relationship, but a relationship with God is just something that no one can escape from, whether sinner or saint. Therefore, true biblical counseling brings a counselee in contact with the living God. First, to pursue a right relationship with him if they don't have one through faith in Jesus Christ, then to help that person to grow in relating to God through all the ups and downs that life brings. And this biblical counselors unveil how God is working on his pur purposes providentially or how God uses hardship for good in order to shape them into the image of Christ or how God is a rock who can be leaned upon in times of trouble. Essentially, all of theology proper relates to counseling since all our lives are about relating to God. And as we relate to God, one of the, the things that's so important is just really, truly knowing him. And so as I counsel very often, one of the assignments that I give are studies on God's character so that people can know who he is, how great, how immense, how amazing that he is. Okay, that's important as they look at how big their problems are. If our God's small, our problems are a big problem. But if God is big, then it puts perspective on our problems most definitely. <clears throat> we can think about the story of Joseph. Okay? How did the understanding of God impact his life in particular? Well, many times when we're wronged, how do we feel? Well, certainly bitter, angry. You know, those are all natural ways, I think, that our heart responds to things that are evil or wicked that's done against us. But is that where Joseph stayed? Is that where God wants us to stay? Absolutely not. Joseph was a man who loved God. Okay, he served him faithfully in all sorts of different circumstances. And the text explains why very clearly why Joseph was able to do that. One of my favorite verses is in the Bible, 
is Genesis 50, verse 20, and it says, Joseph speaking to his brothers, okay, at the very end of his life, his father had just died, and now his brothers are scared. They're coming to him, and we're not really sure if they made the story up. It seems that way, that our father promised that, you know, you do us no harm. And, and Joseph says, am I in the place of God? And actually, he kind of was. I mean, he was the second most powerful person in the world. He could have snapped his finger, and his brothers would have disappeared, okay? But he's saying, no, God, God's going to worry about that. Right, that's what he's saying. Am I in the place of God? He said, I'm not God. God's going to take care of that. And then he says to them the, the famous statement in verse 20, what you determined for evil, God determined for good to save many people alive. That was profoundly significant in Joseph's heart, I think, throughout all this time of his life. He trusted God. He knew God. He knew God was sovereign. <laughs> Right? God determined this. God was ultimately the one orchestrating all these things. Okay? And his wisdom was involved from the very, very beginning when he was sold into slavery. Okay? God knew that, they, that his people were going to face famine. They needed to be saved. And so he sent Joseph ahead of them to do good. And so God is one who's in control, one who's wise, can see the future and plan accordingly, even use evil to accomplish good. And so that's the... That's the the truths that Joseph believed about God and settled his heart and allowed him not, I think, to be bitter and angry, but to serve and love God. And so theology, again, is all about, our lives are all about relating to God, and to do that, we have to know him. Number two, epistemology. That is the doctrine of knowledge. God defines reality. Okay, this is how we know what we know, in other words, as we speak about epistemology. God defines reality because he created it. If anyone knows, therefore, what is real or true, that is which, which accurately reflects reality, it's God. Okay, he made it. God also knows everything. He's omniscient. Okay, there's nothing he does not know. This means only God sees the whole picture. Okay, postmodernists, if you're familiar with their thinking, would say that we cannot know anything for sure because we cannot know everything. And that's true. There might be something we'd find out that changes our mind. That's happened to all of us, certainly. But what this leads to is statements like my truth and your truth, okay, because of different systems of thinking. But this thinking is completely nonsensical if there is someone who knows everything and has told us what is true. Epistemology, therefore, is connected to bibliology, the doctrine of the Bible, since it is where God has revealed himself and the truth concerning our world. And since God's word is inerrant and sufficient, it is a source of knowledge that can be absolutely depended upon. I mentioned Proverbs 3.5 last time, but I'll mention it again. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Right? This is a statement about epistemology and bibliology since it calls us to trust in God's knowledge and wisdom in the Bible. If you or a counselee wants truth then, you must see things as God sees them and define them as he does. And this is essential in any counseling system. We must depend upon the word, right? As I counsel, I'm constantly thinking back to Scripture. What does the Bible say about these things? What does God's word say about these things? When I was working at the Masters University, uh, I worked for a professor named Dr. Baker. I think many of you guys have met him, seen his teaching. He came from an equip seminar, I believe, last year. And what he would do, and he told me to do, in my counseling is always to have an open Bible. Okay, it doesn't mean you necessarily have to be thinking of a specific text, but to have an open Bible before you, 
right, between you and the counselees so that as what they're saying, you're thinking and interpreting it through the lens of Scripture. And as you speak, you're trying to speak the things that God would have you speak as well too. And if God has told us, if he's given us a sure system of knowledge that we can depend upon, what else would we depend upon besides him and what he's revealed? Let's look at anthropology. Number three, the doctrine of man that is an understanding of who we are. The Bible says a lot about this. We are certainly God's creation. This means, as well as many other things, that we're not just an animal, okay? Um, atheistic thinking, okay, thinks that way. We kind of all came from the same thing. That's completely wrong, okay? We're made in God's image. This also means that we're not a victim. God has given us responsibility, okay? In particular, we're gonna be held accountable. And if we're created, okay, even as we learned this morning, Okay, that, that God, Christ, is first. Okay, we're not God. We're a created being. Okay, we're not gods. This also means, as I mentioned before, we're not autonomous. Okay, we have a creator who's given us guidelines and boundaries in which we are to live, his li- live our lives in order to glorify and honor him and ultimately for our good. We also, too, are directed by our hearts. And this is where change is necessary. But again, I want to look at the big picture, okay? The Bible says a lot about anthropology. And I'll tell you, this is where uh, so often we are so divergent with secular systems as we understand who we are. Counseling is impossible, okay, as we think about the big picture of anthropology. Counseling is impossible, impossible without making some decisions about who we are, about man, about those we counsel, anthropological questions like what's wrong or why do we do what we do or what are our true needs or what or who we are must be answered in a counseling system. This is where secular models of counsel separate from biblical counseling most profoundly. The, the Bible helps us understand that we were made in God's image. Okay, there's lots here. And therefore, because we're made in God's image, we're worthy of dignity and respect. Okay, that we're, we're made to be relational beings, to live in relationships that we were made uniquely male and female, that we have a dual nature that is both physical, the things that we can touch, and immaterial as well too, that we are dependent, that we were made for God's glory, and therefore our worshipers. What, what drives who we are and what we do? It's the fact that we're worshipers. And, and the Bible says a lot more about who we are as well too. Anthropology then relates to counseling, that it helps us to understand the nature of the hurting men and women whom God made and uniquely designed, those who need counsel so that we can truly minister to their actual needs. Okay, if we don't know who people are, okay, what the Bible says about them, it's, it's hard for us to really truly help them okay, to meet needs biblically. A biblical understanding of man is important for counseling also because we live out of our heart. Okay, this, in, in terms of anthropology, is probably the most significant and profound of all of it, we'll look a lot more at this next week. But speaking of the heart, Proverbs 4.23 says this, watch over your heart with all diligence. Okay, it takes hard work. Why? For from it flows the springs of life. Everything that goes on inside our hearts, our immaterial being, okay, comes out into our lives. Look at the illustration here, the uh, diagram here in just a second. This understanding of the heart helps counselors know the cause of people's behavior, helps them to ask the right questions, and compose the right responses that address the heart, not just simply the behavior. 
This approach is critical because men are not simply products of their environments. Okay? We are personally involved and responsible for the way that we respond to life. Counselors deal in each and every session with a person who lives out of their heart and is in need of discernment a biblical anthropology provides in order to rightly diagnose the situation. Okay, how many times have you guys heard it say, you made me angry? Okay, you guys, we probably all said that. Okay, I've, I've said that before. Um, this situation makes me anxious. Well, it's, it's really not the situation. It's, it's what's, how we're responding to it. You can have 10 different people in the exact same situation and they don't respond the exact same way. Well, what's the difference? It's their hearts ultimately. This also speaks to theories like the uh, empty love tank theory, okay? That really basically says that the, the reason why we do bad things is because we don't have love. We don't have enough love. People aren't loving us enough, okay? And, uh, but that's just, if you look, as you look in the Bible, we know that it's our sinful natures. That's why we respond sinfully, not because we don't have enough love. I, I remember when I was in a college ministry, there was a guy really struggling and he called me up and demanded that I bring him a bunch of pizza and sodas. And he was convinced that if he just was, he was really struggling with a lot of sin. He was convinced that if people just loved him more, if he just had some pizza, okay, and someone would bring it to him and come over to his house, that he would just, he would just do a lot better and he'd start loving people. And, uh, you know, we, we still brought him the stuff, but we were trying to help him think through that this is really not going to solve the problem ultimately. And it didn't. All right, if you guys have the charts there, let's look at this. Uh, thank you, Steve, by the way. Uh, our chart has been updated here recently. But as you look at this, just kind of big picture-wise, you can see above the roots, it says the outer man. And so this is everything that we see, okay? Our words, our speech, our facial expressions, okay? The decisions that we make, okay, we slam the door. That's all outer man, okay? Inner man is everything that happens inside of our hearts, okay? And the heart's described here as four essential components, as the Bible describes it. It's our thoughts, our affections, our will, and our feelings. And I'll explain briefly. We'll get into this in much greater detail in the days ahead. But our thoughts really is what drives the ship. As we think and we get to know different things, it shapes how we feel about them, okay? What we love and what we hate. And from what we love and hate, we either pursue that thing, the things we love and are attracted to, okay? This shapes our will. In other words, we gravitate towards those things and gravitate away from the things we hate, okay? If you hate sports, well, you're probably not gonna be busy, okay, on a Saturday or a Sunday during football season because you're not gonna be interested. But if you are, well, you're gonna gravitate towards those things, all right? And your thinking and what you love helps make those, influence those decisions, okay, of the will in particular. And whether we get what we want, okay, our team wins, or we don't get what we want, okay, we have an emotional response, okay, either positive or negative emotions, if that makes sense. And, and so all of these things, okay, the jumping up and screaming and, and cheering, okay, comes up out of the heart, okay, as you look at sports or the disgust, okay, <laughs> the end of the season coming earlier than you were hoping or whatever it may have been, okay, those responses, okay, aren't just out of nowhere. They come from the way you think and what you love, okay? Your emotions are tied intricately to all these things. They all overlap, and this is, again, why Proverbs 4.23 says, out of the heart, 
right, flow all the issues of life. And so it's not this person that made me angry. It was the thinking, okay, what we loved, okay, being impeded. We'll get into this actually in the fall. And our judgment that that's wrong, okay, is the reason why we got angry, a, a, a negative moral judgment about something that's happened, okay? And so we live out of our hearts. And again, this is so profound, so divergent, okay, from other systems in particular, primarily because what drives the heart is worship. Okay, this is what animates the heart. We'll get into this next time. Look at anthropology. Let's look at hermardiology. That is the doctrine of sin. Hermardiology is a subset of anthropology because it speaks about who we are, what our problems specifically are, what's wrong. It answers the question of counseling. In other words, what's wrong? And the Bible teaches that what is wrong ultimately is sin. That is that man has rebelled against God and there are consequences. We have sin, okay, so that makes problems for our own lives. Other people have sin, they sin against us. And then there's also, too, the curse, okay, that God made upon the world when the first sin occurred, okay? And so we, have, we deal with all these things as well, too. And so sin has a hereditary aspect. Psalm 51, David says, In sin my mother conceived me, and so it's passed on. All men now are sinners, as the Bible teaches. Sin also has a habitual aspect. In Romans 6, it mentions that we're enslaved to sin. And sin also has a very personal aspect as well, too. It's against God. Psalm 51, David says, Only against you, Lord, have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight. And so sin, we know, reaches God's throne. It offends, okay? It hurts, okay? It grieves God. And so the big picture here, unlike the morally neutral clean sheets that many believe, that are part of many counseling systems, all right, that, that they believe we're born as, the Bible teaches that we are all by nature sinners. We have a sinful bent that is self-centered, self-absorbed, and worst of all, at odds with God. Harmodiology, therefore, points people to their need of God's intervention. Man's sinful heart in Scripture is compared to a stone in Ezekiel. He is hard-hearted and in bondage to sin, as in Romans chapter 6. Left to himself, man is caught in his destructive ways, and he is unable to do anything about it. Ephesians 2 says we're dead in our trespasses and sins. This leads both counselee and counselor to trust God for the internal change that only he can ultimately accomplish in our lives and the lives of those we minister to. Hermodiology, again, is a subset of anthropology then, as it relates to counseling and that it helps us to understand the nature of hurting men and women so that we can truly minister to their real needs. Okay, back, I don't know, 15 or, or so years ago, self-esteem was a big deal. You guys, many of you remember, remember that, I'm guessing. All kinds of books, okay, were written about self-esteem. And, you know, as you look at a rebellious child, okay, what is his needs as we look at the Bible can understand anthropologically what the Bible says he is, a creation of God, he's responsible. God's given him his word as well too and how to live and respond. He's asked the kid to obey his parents, etc. We understand that what the child needs isn't self-esteem. He doesn't need to esteem himself more. Okay, we already do that, that's natural, unfortunately. What he needs is salvation. He needs a transformed heart and he needs the ministry of biblical parenting. That's what that child needs ultimately, okay? And so as we look at 
people and their needs, the struggles, the difficulties they have, the word of God systematically, as we look at these different categories, these different ologies, inform our practice. Let's look at soteriology. That is the doctrine of salvation. You could say this is the solution as well too. Biblical counseling finds its overall solution to our fundamental problem in soteriology because it both leads the unsaved towards initial salvation, that is justification, and the saved towards further progress in their salvation, that is sanctification. We can see from the beginning of the Bible that man's greatest need, even from birth, is salvation, ever since Genesis 3. So as Christians speak in the lives of unbelievers, the counsel God wants us to give them first and foremost, is the gospel, right? To understand how they can have a right relationship, how their relationship is not right, right then. God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. This means that counseling initially will always head in the direction of the gospel because salvation or justification not only restores the person's broken relationship with God, it is the seed that must be planted for every God-honoring growth to occur past that in a person's life. Okay, so many times when I meet with people, uh, we always talk about the gospel. We always go through the gospel. And I tell them, I'm not doing this because I think you're not a believer. Okay, the gospel is key and important every day for our lives. Jesus, uh, Paul said of Jesus and his uh, work on the cross in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, that he died, that's Jesus, so that we would no longer live for ourselves, but for him. And so the gospel certainly transforms our relationship. It, bring, it, it destroys the enmity that was between us and God, the cross, that we can be forgiven, but it also too has implications every day for the way that we live our lives as well too because that's the reason why Jesus died. So salvation is the solution in the counseling room that we must pursue since pleasing and glorifying God is the goal of life and the reason that we're made. Therefore, even after salvation, Counseling intersects soteriology and progressive sanctification. God wants to see people not only justified, but learning and growing as an imitator of his son who is well-pleasing in his sight. We will discuss in the coming weeks as we look at the process of change in Ephesians 4 and also Colossians 3 that calls us to put off sin, renew our minds, and to put on Christ. This is how God continues his work the power of his word. I'm reminded of Jesus' statement as he prayed to his father in John 17. Verse 17, he said, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And so this is how we grow and change through the power of God, okay, working through his word in each of our lives. This resolves the problem that began in Genesis chapter 3. Let's look next six at Christology and the doctrine of Christ. Christ, of course, is the second Adam, the God-man. He is our model. Another way to say this is biblical counseling find its goal, finds its goal in Christ. Just as Olympians compete for medals, Christians run to lay hold of Christ and Christ's likeness in particular. He is the goal or example in counseling because he was perfect and without sin. And so all men look to him as the model for God-honoring lives. In other systems, you guys, it's not Christ. Okay, it's normal. Okay, but what does that mean? Uh, a man that was, is not a believer wrote a book called Saving Normal. It's a very interesting book because he, he argues, where are we going? How do we know what is truly a disorder? Okay, he helped author the DSM-IV, which is the Diagnostic Statistical Manual that talks about what's, 
what's mental illness, what's wrong, what's bad with us, but there's, there's no criteria to truly model that. There's no Christ, there's no example in particular, and so it's just a product of man's mind, what's good, what's bad, etc. Okay, for us as Christians, we have Christ. Okay, this process as we strive to please Christ happens as men are made complete in him through the ministry of the Bible to help them think and act more and more like Christ. It is the mind of Christ. More than this, Christ is also our personal redeemer. He came not only to die so that men would be forgiven of their sins okay, as their substitute, but to be the vine that Christians are grafted into for bearing good fruit. Without him, all we exhibit to honor God that is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, everything would be impossible. So whether you struggle with cutting, depression, anger, marriage problems, or one of the many, many other issues that sin yields, Jesus can be looked to and trusted in as both the model and help needed to change. Okay? Just as I spoke about a moment ago, about just how great God is, one of the things I very often give to people who come to my office for the very first time is a little booklet called Christ and Your Problems. And that, that helps give them perspective okay, on our personal Savior. Okay, it's not just salvation that we need, but it's in a person, Jesus. And if he can save, if he's powerful to do that, which he certainly is, if he, his word has the wisdom that we need to navigate our problems and difficulties, if he will provide us the grace we need to do that, the help we need, then what problem can't we face if we depend upon him and his word? Right? There's no problem, ultimately. And that should be a, a tremendous encouragement. I, I try very often as people come to my office, right, as they're overwhelmed, right, their problems are huge. That's what I want them to do. I want them to, to look up okay, beyond the Everest of their problems and to see the God who made the stars who's overwhelmingly big. I love Psalm 121. It says, from where shall my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. Okay, and that, that helps us give perspective on how great and awesome our God is, just how big he is all right, in light of the problems and difficulties. We don't want to minimize people's problems. We want to maximize the sufficiency of Christ. Number seven, pneumatology. That is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. We, we see in Scripture that he certainly is a person. We see also too necessary that the Holy Spirit is necessary for the counselor to do his job. Let's turn over to Isaiah chapter 11. As we think about the ministry of Christ, we just talked about him. We also want to think about how he did what he did okay, while on earth. I think this is very profound, very interesting. In Isaiah 11, and so verse 1, it says, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. This is speaking of Jesus. In verse 2, The Spirit of the Lord, the Holy Spirit, will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. As we see here, this is the Holy Spirit that empowered Jesus' ministry while on earth. The Holy Spirit is what we need ultimately as counselors then to be qualified just as Jesus needed him as the God-man as well too. 
as we consider who the most important person okay, in the counseling room is, it's certainly not us. Okay, we could say it's the Holy Spirit. It's our God. This is true because it's He who convicts of sin, of righteousness and judgment, and ultimately who works to change the heart by empowering sinners towards purity, towards Christ-likeness, and even more, who guides believers so that they no longer walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Yet while the counselor has their role in this, a good counselor is dependent upon and patient for the Spirit to work. One of the most common questions I get uh, in, in this counseling ministry is, is how do you meet with people that are going through so many tremendous problems and not be discouraged or overwhelmed by that? I, I can say there's probably times of weakness or you know, better or worse, most definitely. But my answer really is that when my heart feels overwhelmed, I, I think about the Holy Spirit. He's the one who accomplishes the heavy lifting. And so as I feel overwhelmed or discouraged potentially, I just think about his ministry, right? I think too about my responsibility. Am I faithfully ministering the word and I need to trust God to use his word to work in that person's life? I'm not responsible for solving all their problems in some sense. I need to give them the answers. I need to faithfully minister the word, give them the answers, but it's up to them and it's up to the Holy Spirit to work in their lives to produce results. Okay, the results that would solve the problems in their lives, that would encourage them, that would help them to love their wives or whatever the case may be. And so I, I very rarely feel overwhelmed, I think, so often just because I know who's at work and who's doing a work, okay, in this person's life, most definitely. All right, ecclesiology, that is the doctrine of the church. Now, the church is the body of Christ. Jesus is the head. We talked about that this morning. As we looked at Colossians, he also is the, the body of Christ is the place of worship. Okay, this is the church and sanctification. That is all the way from the preaching and teaching of the word in settings like this, but also all the way down to the one another's. As you guys have conversations, okay, you can be used by God in people's lives. And I know all of you have had that happen. I remember distinctly when we were having our first child, we were in church, we got all this advice and like 95% of it was great, you know? And it helped us so profoundly. We were so encouraged in all the different details because I, I distinctly remember holding Annabelle for the very first time and, and wondering, so many things come with an instruction manual, you know? <laughs> this seems so much more important. Uh, where, why is there no instruction manual? Uh, but of course, we have the Bible, you know, we have others, we have each other. And so the church is used in profound ways to help one another, to encourage one another. And so the, the, the church also, too, has God given authority. We have limitations to what we can say, do, etc. We are accountable to God to use His word to direct our lives and ministries. As we consider more of ecclesiology, Paul teaches that rightly equipped members of the church, this is a little bit of a review from yesterday that rightly equipped members of the church can counsel one another. This is important because all of the commands to counsel are given to the church. So whether the command is to encourage, admonish, rebuke, etc., the responsibility to counsel falls on the individuals in the church. God asked each member to do uh, this in order to build up Christ and to accomplish the work of the ministry. One of the specific purposes God has in mind for counseling within the church is purity or Christ-likeness. Matthew 18 and Galatians 6 both contain passages speaking to the church on the importance of lovingly pointing out the sin of another. 
God wants His church to do this for the purpose of restoration. Sin in the church hurts people's relationship to God and many times with others in the church as well too. And so ecclesiology also relates to counseling because counselors want to do their best to integrate a counselee into right relationship with the church and fellow, or fellowship because of its importance in their lives. God uses the analogy of the body to describe the church and its members as parts of the body and each member works together to support the proper function of the rest of the bodies. And this is, this is the idea here. Many people's issues are caused because they're too focused on themselves instead of serving others, especially in the church, the way that God intends. Okay? If people come to my office, they're not reading the Word, they're not in regular fellowship, uh, that, that has a hugely negative impact on their lives. It's not going to immediately solve all their problems to start going to Sunday school, but over the course of many years, as they hear the word taught, as they hear other people's lives, prayer requests, they get to know people there, being encouraged and able to encourage, their hearts aren't just drawn to themselves. They think about other people so much more, right? A big part of our problems very often is our pride and selfishness. We're so inwardly focused very often, but being around other people, seeing their needs, Having an opportunity to minister to people so often takes our eyes off of ourselves. And so that's critical. And so biblical counseling relates to ecclesiology by being the vessel God uses to shepherd his sheep, this is a big picture, into right relationship to the church so that the church functions as he intends. Okay, I, I so enjoy and appreciate having people nearly every time that I do counseling sit in because there's only so much in terms of relationship that I can invest in their lives. I try to text, call different people at different times, but having another lady or having another man sit in who can meet with them on the weeks that, that I'm not able to meet, right, continues that relationship. And oftentimes it's not just, just me, okay? Very, very often it's, it's changing now, but when I first came here, every time I meet with somebody, it was like, hello, my name is Daniel, and I would meet them for the very first time because our church is so big, but if I have someone sit in who's in their Sunday school class, they're going to see them and relate to them and know them and be able to follow up in a way that oftentimes I can't, okay? Because I'm not going to see them very well. And so the church is so vital, so important as we think about uh, ministering the lives of others. Number nine, ecclesiology or uh, eschatology, the doctrine of end times. The study of end times is not something most people relate to the discipline of counseling but often functions as a motivation in counseling. It does many other things too, but the truth that Christ will return and that people will be held accountable to God serves as a warning for both believers and unbelievers. Believers need to know that they will give an account to God one day, and unbelievers need to know that, uh, about the consequences uh, for sin and rejecting God's offer of salvation. So part of the way eschatology impacts our counsel is this, just what Paul counseled in 2 Corinthians 5. He said, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. And so we, our eschatology certainly informs our practice of counseling. And as you can see, these things certainly overlate. The study of end times also relates to counseling in a more positive way by giving a proper perspective to Christians. We are told that this world is not our home, but that we are citizens of heaven. And this can provide godly hope and joy for Christians by encouraging them not to set their minds on earthly things, but rather to look ahead to their future home with God. As you guys think about 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, those Christians were going through many trials. It just said various trials. It isn't, it's not specific. 
Uh, first century Christians went through many persecutions and difficult things as Christianity first came on the world stage and competed with uh, Judaism and other world religions like that of the Romans. And so they suffered tremendously. And what Peter does in that first chapter is point them towards eschatological realities, that their, they, their, their hope in heaven is assured ultimately. And so they can have joy right now because of what Jesus Christ has ultimately done for them today or in the past at some point when they were saved, but also what's going to come in the future. All right, We can have hope for good for the future because our God is good. He'll use the difficult circumstances in our lives for good, but also, too, there's going to come a day in the future where God deals with sin, okay, as we've been learning about in Revelation, Okay, punishes those who need it and restores us, gives us a new body, okay, and takes away all the repercussions of sin, not only in our own bodies through glorification, but also to wipes every tear from our eyes. All the curse, all of that will be undone and will be with God to be able to walk with him, to know him, okay, and to be in a place called heaven. And so that gives perspective on the difficulties, okay, and to know too that our lives are short. So, so many ways to ask Catology impacts the way we think about today. So often we can get so very stuck, all of us are guilty of this, I think, so stuck on what's going on today, how we feel today, okay, and not think about the big picture of what God has accomplished in our lives and where we're headed. And so as we conclude, I hope the Bible serves as the foundation and source of authority for our counseling system. I hope that that idea is much clearer as we think about the canonical scriptures, as we build, okay, through exegesis upon, okay, each of these to develop a systematic theology of all these different important topics of the Bible and how each of these different topics, although we didn't go through all of them, we didn't go through angelology and things like that, for example, that these shape, okay, the way that we think about the world we live in, okay, the God, okay, who we're in relationship with, Okay, who he is in relation to our problems in particular, who we are as people, okay, what's fundamentally wrong, okay, and who we look to in particular as a savior, as the agent of change, okay, to give us hope for a future that's completely radically different. And so I hope that's an encouragement to you guys. All counseling systems come from somewhere. Okay, it's either God again or it's man. And as we think about how much that we personally, okay, can trust the source of the scripture, right? It comes from the one who made everything. It's true, okay? We've, uh, the longer we're in Christ, the more and more we know the truthfulness of the scriptures. And so I hope as you guys think that it's, it's think about all this we talked about today, it affirms all the more the trustworthiness of scripture to inform and shape the system, okay, as you approach counseling in your lives as well too. Let me conclude our time with prayer. Father, we're so thankful for uh, who you are and uh, what you've accomplished in our lives. Lord, you've given us a future and a hope. Lord, you've redeemed us, Lord, from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of your beloved Son. Lord, I just pray that as we think about the ministry of counseling, as we seek to speak, all of us are counselors, as we seek to speak into the lives of others that your word day by day would more and more inform okay, our thinking about people's lives and their circumstances so that we can be God-honoring counselors, Lord, to speak your truth appropriately, timely, purposefully, etc., in love to those we minister to. We love you. Pray, God, first this would impact our hearts, then our counseling ministries as well, too. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.